Episode 15, The Early Roman Republic. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and try to see how those events shaped our modern world. This is episode 15, The Roman Republic. This episode, we're finally going to talk about the actual history of the Roman Republic. But before I get started, I have to put in another plug for my favorite podcast of all times, and that is The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. In that podcast, Duncan goes into great depth about the history, characters, and structure of Rome. It's also extremely entertaining and insightful. So if you're at all interested in the topic of Rome, I highly recommend that podcast. We won't be covering Rome in quite the detail that Mike Duncan does, but we are going to spend a few episodes on it because it's it's important and, well, because I like the topic. Today, we're looking at the early days of the Roman Republic, before it all fell apart. When Rome got rid of her last king, an after-effect of that was that Rome had a long-lasting hatred of tyrants and of concentrations of power. So the government they set up was designed to prevent any one man from taking power. Not to say that their original government was completely fair and just. At first, the government of the Republic was completely run by the patricians. The plebeians were left out. When they got rid of Tarquin the Proud, the Senate just took over running Rome. And to be in the Senate, you had to be a patrician. So, of course, the Senate was biased towards the patricians and the plebeians felt left out. That will become a problem very quickly in the Roman Republic. The Senate, at the start of the Republic, nominated two men every year to be consuls. A consul was sort of like a president, except that there was always two of them. The consuls were responsible for carrying out the laws that the Senate passed, and the consuls were also the head generals of the legions. The consuls came from the patricians, at least at first, though later on the plebeians were also able to become consuls. Consuls weren't just chosen at random, though. The Romans, over time, built up this career pathway called the cursus honorum, or the course of honor. They had all these other lower one-year offices below consul, and you had to work your way up. Some of the assignments were in the legions, some were in foreign territories, some were in the city bureaucracy. Basically, if you wanted to be somebody important in Rome, you started at the bottom, and you took a low office, and you worked your way up into the more important offices. Now, this cursus honorum had two effects. First, by the time you got to the top, you knew how the whole system worked and you knew all the players. So the consuls weren't guys who just appeared out of nowhere and were handed the reins of power like some of the recent presidents in the United States. If you worked your way up the cursus honorum, you knew the system and you knew how to work it by the time you got to be a consul. The second effect of this was that it did tend to weed out the less competent people. And in Rome, being competent was a big thing. Like I said, they really hated disorder and disorganization, and they weren't really all that tolerant of people not doing their jobs if it led to disorder. So if you weren't good at one of the lower postings, you might not advance up the ladder. There was also a lot of horse trading that went on, so to speak, if you wanted to advance up the course of honor. You had to have enough senators on your side to get elected to whatever post you wanted. A lot of people actually went into debt buying votes. But depending on your posting, you could make a lot of money and pay back the people who had voted for you. Of course, then you sort of had to do what the people who had paid for your office wanted you to do. 
This was more open back then, and it was kind of accepted practice. People had their backers, and people knew who they were. People knew who supported whom. Uh, You just knew who was on the side of a particular person in office. It was politics just like it is now. Wealthy people behind the scenes getting their candidate elected, and then, of course, expecting their candidate to do what they wanted done. There were laws and traditions that governed this process, and more or less everyone obeyed them until things started to fall apart in the late days of the Republic. But we're, we're not there yet. We're at the beginning. I just wanted to talk for a moment longer about how the Republic worked. We'll add layers to this governmental system as we go. Pretty much, as soon as the city of Rome was founded, they started fighting with their neighbors. And this continued when they became a Republic, too. Well, and also when they were an empire. In fact, less than a year after they deposed Tarquin the Proud and founded the Republic, Rome was attacked by the Etruscans. From this attack comes one of Rome's early legendary stories, one that they often use as an example of Roman bravery and sacrifice. This Etruscan army marched down on the west side of the Tiber. Rome is on the east side. They marched down the west side and they captured and pillaged all the Roman land that was on that side. They ended up on the west side of the Tiber, just directly across the river from the middle of Rome. There was, at the time, one wooden bridge that connected Rome to its lands on the west side. The small band of Roman soldiers who were encamped on the west side, they all ran away from the Etruscans and they ran back across the bridge to take refuge in the city. Except for one man, a soldier named Horatius. Horatius stood on the bridge and he said, You shall not pass! Okay, maybe he didn't say that. That was someone else. But Horatius alone didn't run. He stood there. He held his ground, his sword and shield ready. The Etruscans sent men out to fight him, but he held his ground and fought them off. In fact, he stayed there fighting long enough for the Romans to demolish the bridge behind him. And then, according to legend, Horatius, in full armor, jumped into the river and swam back to the Roman side. There's actually a great British poem about it by a guy named Macaulay. And this is how this poem goes. Then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate, to every man upon this earth death cometh sooner or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods? Of course, this isn't what Horatius actually said, but this English poem very much captures the spirit of Roman culture. An honorable, brave man fighting an enemy, facing fearful odds. This was the very best way a man could die. So Horatius held off the Etruscans long enough for the other Romans to destroy the bridge, but despite Horatius' efforts, the Etruscans eventually surrounded Rome, and so after a standoff, the two sides made a treaty that halted the fighting, at least for the time being. That same year, Rome made a treaty with another enemy, Carthage, in which Carthage agreed to let Rome have control of most of the Italian peninsula in exchange for Rome agreeing that they wouldn't send trading ships into the western part of the Mediterranean, which was controlled by Carthage. The Romans and the Etruscans, after this treaty, still had some skirmishes, but the two cultures became more and more unified, and eventually the Romans kind of adopted a lot of things out of the Etruscan culture. But the Etruscans were about to disappear off the map, because we're about to meet one of Rome's other great enemies, besides Carthage, and that is the barbarians. We'll come back to the barbarians in a minute, but we need to talk about the troubles in and around Rome first. About nine years after the Republic was founded, which was in 510 BC, so this is now 501 BC, Rome was threatened by a descendant of Tarquin the Proud, 
a guy named Octavius Mamilius, who got a group of Sabine and Latin tribes together to attack Rome. As they marched on Rome, Rome chose to appoint, for the first time, a dictator. To the Romans, a dictator meant something different than it means to us today. When we say dictator, we think of Joseph Stalin or Hitler or Mao Zedong, someone who holds power for life and has absolute control over everything in the country. A Roman dictator, at least at first, was appointed for a maximum of six months, and it was a real point of honor among the first few Roman dictators to resign the position as soon as their real task was accomplished. One dictator, a guy named Cincinnatus, resigned after only 15 days. He's another Roman hero like Horatius, but more real and less of a legend. We'll come back to him in a minute. The Roman dictator, the first one, Titus Slarcius, was already a consul, and he took control of the city to protect them from the attacking Sabines and Latins. He sent envoys out to negotiate with the tribes, and this was surprisingly successful, and they avoided war. And before his six-month term was up, Larcius laid down his office. This became the standard Roman practice, to name a dictator in times of crisis, and then the dictator would step down when the crisis was over. Now, they also used this in internal squabbles, too. I mentioned the tensions between the patricians and the plebeians. Besides the issues of land and the lack of representation, many of the plebeians, especially ex-soldiers, were deeply in debt to the patricians. Often, while the men were away in the legion, families had to borrow money to buy food and pay taxes, and when the soldiers came home, their household was deep in debt. The patricians would then offer to buy their land at a greatly reduced value to cancel the debt, but then the soldier and his family didn't have any land or any income, and so they would move to Rome, and there became this increasingly large population of unemployed plebeians living in Rome. In 495 BC, an old soldier in rags protested in the forum. And this started a general riot of debt slaves, old soldiers, and poor plebeians, and they demanded that the Senate do something. It was apparently the first time that the plebeians used mobs to get the patricians' attentions, but it would not be the last. Under pressure, the Senate passed a law that no one on active duty as a soldier could become a debt slave. But this didn't really resolve all the issues of the imbalance of power or the lack of representation of the plebeians. The next year, in 494 BC, amid rumors of an attack from the north by the city of Volsiae, the plebeians refused to answer the call to assemble the legions. In fact, they went on what is apparently the first recorded strike in history. The plebeians left the city in mass, and they went out to a hill three miles outside the city and sort of camped there, and they were prepared to leave the city defenseless against the Volsians. This is known as the secession of the plebs, and they would use this tactic again several times to get what they wanted. This time, the plebeians demanded their own assembly with the right to pass laws that applied to them, and they also demanded representation in the Senate. So the Senate created this new office called the Tribune. Tribunes were chosen by the plebeian assembly, and the tribunes had the right to veto any law or action of the Senate, and that's a very powerful tool. The tribunes were also declared sacrosanct. Sacrosanct means that anyone who did them harm within the city of Rome limits could then be killed themselves without any consequence. So after the creation of the assembly in the office of the tribune, there was definitely a better balance of power. But tension between the plebs and the patricians would be a problem throughout the republic. 
By the way, the founding fathers of the United States were not patricians. They were plebeians. They were reacting to a patrician government based in England that was not responsive to their plebeian needs. The men who became our founding fathers were not generally the sons of aristocrats. Many of them were the sons of farmers or merchants, and some of them were self-made men themselves. Benjamin Franklin was born poor. So was John Adams. So was Alexander Hamilton. There's a musical about that. You might have heard of it. They were very consciously emulating the balance of power in the Roman Republic when they created the Constitution. Many of them had been educated in the classics, and so they had read Plato's Republic, and they had read Livy and Tacitus and the Roman histories. They were very intentionally creating a government system that was designed to hold the power of the central government in check and to prevent tyrants. At some point, I need to talk about all the stupid decisions that we have made since then that have led to the over-concentration of power that we see in Washington, D.C. today. But again, I'm getting ahead of myself. I mentioned Cincinnatus a few minutes ago. He was another semi-legendary figure of the early republic. He had served as a consul and perhaps even as a dictator briefly too, though that first story of him as a dictator might be just a legend. Anyway, in 458 B.C., a Roman army camp was surrounded by a tribe named the Iiquai. Cincinnatus, who had retired from the Senate, was working on his small farm to the west of Rome. A group of men was sent by Rome to ask him to come and take over as dictator. They found him literally plowing his own fields. He asked them what they wanted, and they asked him to go put on a toga before they talked to him. He had his wife, Rosilia, bring his toga, and he put it on, and the men informed him that he had been named dictator. Cincinnatus returned with them to Rome. He marshaled an army, and he marched out to meet the Aequi. He and the army surrounded the Aequi, who were surrounding the Roman camp. So Cincinnatus attacked them from the outside, and at that, the Romans also rushed out of the camp and attacked them from the inside. The Aequi, being attacked on both sides, quickly surrendered. Cincinnatus accepted their surrender, but then he stuck two spears in the ground, and he tied a third spear across the top and made the Aequi completely disarm themselves and pass under the tied spears, which made them stoop down as they passed through. This was known as passing under the yoke, and it's an ancient world tradition, meaning that the army had completely surrendered. Cincinnatus marched both Roman armies back to Rome, and then immediately resigned his dictatorship after only 15 days. Then he went back to plowing his farm. Cincinnatus is rightly held up as an example of Roman values. Get the job done quickly and efficiently, and then go back to whatever you were doing. Also, he shows the Roman value of distrusting and avoiding having too much power in the hands of one man, and at least the very early Roman value of not wanting power or riches, but merely wanting a simple life. We see a bit of this reflected in the character of Maximus in the movie Gladiator, as he is shown several times dreaming of his farm in the country and wanting to walk away from power. Cincinnatus was an example of what a true Roman should be. He served his city when he was needed, but he did not long for power himself. Our founding father, George Washington, was very consciously following this example when he left the presidency after only two terms. That, and he apparently hated the politics of being the president and wanted to go back to his own farm. It's worth mentioning here that not all the people who become dictator in Rome followed Cincinnatus' example, and we will see that when we get to Julius Caesar. It's also worth mentioning that, yes, the city of Cincinnati in Ohio is indeed named after Cincinnatus. They have a statue of him there in a park near downtown. He's standing over his plow. 
Also, my brothers were born there. One of them was born during a race riot that my parents could actually see from the hospital window downtown. Getting ahead of myself again, though, so back to Rome. The next big step in the evolution of the Roman Republic was the creation of written laws. In 450 BC, a group of ten men were appointed to study the laws of Athens and then to write down the laws of Rome. So they created what became known as the Twelve Tables, which were literally twelve tables of written laws, carved in wood at first, that were set out in the forum for all to see. The idea was that no one, not even senators or tribunes or consuls, were above the law. This has since been called the rule of law, which is the alternative to the rule of the strong. All governmental systems are either one or the other. The difference is that under the rule of the strong system, the strong power or person makes laws that everyone else has to abide by, but they don't have to abide by them themselves. They don't apply to the strong. You have to pay taxes, but I don't. That sort of thing. Under the rule of law, the laws, in theory, apply to everyone. I'm not sure if this has ever really happened, though, because politicians, being who they are, they often tend to exempt themselves from the laws that they apply to everyone else. But at least the principle was set up by Rome that no one is above the law. That, of course, even in Rome, only applies to citizens, not to aliens, slaves, conquered people, or allies. Those people had their own set of rules. The Twelve Tables were set up in 450 B.C., this is about the same time that Athens and Sparta began fighting the Peloponnesian Wars, by the way. For the next 50 years after that, Rome had ongoing fights with its neighboring cities and tribes with mixed results, but more or less, Rome fought off all of its attackers and managed to absorb or make treaties with the neighbors to the north and the south. But in 395 BC, Rome ran into their first real threat since the Etruscans in the early days of the Republic. That is, the barbarians. Rome had trouble with groups that they called barbarians from 395 BC until the end of the empire. What's a barbarian? Well, to Rome, it was anyone from the north of the Italian peninsula. There were actually a lot of different barbarian groups, and some of them were quite civilized and organized, but Rome called them barbarians, and so now we call them that too. To the Romans, anyone except them and the Greeks were barbarians. The Greeks were cool enough and civilized enough to not be called barbarians. Did you know that the barbarians actually make a quick showing in the Bible? Yep. In the third chapter of Colossians, Paul says to the people in Colossae, which is in Greece, Lie not to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, in which there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision or uncircumcision, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, nor free. But Christ is all and in all. So apparently the Apostle Paul knew about the barbarians, and some of them had become Christians because they were all part of the Christ is all and in all. Some of the groups that the Romans called barbarian uh, were actually pretty barbaric in the sense that they often wiped out whole cities and cultures. But hey, the Romans did that too. They tended to migrate out of France and Germany over the years in huge groups, migrating with all their women and children and livestock and all of their like belongings in wagons and just is a huge horde of people coming. And they displaced, in many cases, the tribes that lived in the places that they wanted to settle. The first group of barbarians, the ones who wiped out the Etruscans and almost wiped out Rome too, were the Gauls. They came from southern France, which 
Rome called Gaul. And they were a fairly warlike tribe themselves. They settled mostly in the northern parts of Italy and conquered many Etruscan towns as they moved down the peninsula, eventually wiping out the Etruscan civilization. The Gauls swept down the peninsula and eventually surrounded Rome. The Gauls as a fighting unit, were more of a horde than an organized legion, but there were a lot of them, and so they were pretty able easily to wipe out the Etruscans. Then they descended on Rome. In 390 BC, at a point when the Romans were already weak from fighting other local tribes and from a bad plague, the Gauls came further south and they surrounded Rome. They broke through the outer walls, and the Romans hid in the citadels on their hills. The Gauls set the rest of the city on fire. This is known as the first sack of Rome, and it left a long-lasting fear in the memory of the Romans. The Romans eventually paid off the Gauls with several large piles of gold to get them to leave. The Gauls, actually, were suffering from the Roman heat and humidity and the swampy lowlands that they had camped in, and they were ready to leave anyway. So they headed back north, and they settled in northern Italy. The Gauls themselves actually founded several important Italian cities, including Milan, Verona, and Vicenza. Eventually, the Romans got their strength back, and they went back to their conquering ways, and in time, they actually absorbed the Gauls living in northern Italy, and eventually the Gauls that were living in Gaul, or was known basically now as France. So the early Roman Republic had trouble with the local tribes and with invading barbarians, but eventually, Rome came to dominate the entire Italian peninsula. I want to tell one more story about Rome and how it conquered the cities and tribes of Italy. At one point, Rome sent an ambassador to the coastal town of Tusculum to tell them that Rome wanted to create an alliance with them. Now, this is sort of a veiled threat, and everyone knows it, right? Ally with us, or else. So this ambassador comes, and he speaks to the council of the city in their forum. And while he was speaking, the local people began to mock his toga. Apparently, they didn't wear togas there. At one point, one of the men from the assembly threw some mud on the ambassador, but the ambassador kept speaking, and he finished his speech. At the end, however, he said to the assembly, the mud on my garments will be washed out with the blood of this town. Then he left and returned to Rome. He and the Romans came back with two legions, and they wiped out the entire town. They burned it to the ground and killed all the men and took all the women and children as slaves. That is how the Romans were. They're good to their allies, but they're brutal to those who defied them. During the time of the Republic, Rome kept expanding all throughout Italy, making allies and being brutal to the others. They expanded also into the Eastern Mediterranean, and they established trading relationships across the ocean, the Mediterranean Sea, that is, with Spain, the islands of the Eastern Mediterranean, and with Sicily. This, however, was a bit of a problem because those areas were already trading with Carthage and Carthage didn't like Rome cutting in on their business. Next episode, we'll talk about Rome's wars with Carthage, which are known as the Punic Wars. I said that Rome had trouble with the barbarians throughout its history. That's true, but Rome's biggest enemy was not the barbarians. It was Carthage. And as the Roman orator Cato was fond of saying, Carthage must be destroyed. Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. And there's a million things I haven't done. 
just you waiting, just you.